You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 17, Religious Experiences. So, Jim, what is a religious experience? It's generally interpreted as an experience that has some kind of a supernatural influence. You might see God or communicate with a spirit, uh, or you might pull back the curtain to see what the world is really like, uh, interpreted that way. And to some extent, what a person considers religious uh, and a religious experience is a matter of interpretation. If the person's religion includes something like demons, for example, they might uh, interpret a particularly bad nightmare as being religious. Where somebody who doesn't believe in demons might just write it off as normal experience, right? Uh, one time I was lying in bed and I saw a black shape darting in the periphery of my vision. So, you know, I'm a cognitive scientist. I know our visual system sometimes has glitches that make us see things that aren't there. So I didn't think anything of it. But a person who believed in evil spirits, they might come away with that with a, uh, a different interpretation, right? They might have uh, interpreted that as a religious experience and thought that they actually, you know, did see demons. Yeah, so it makes sense. If you're already religious, you're more likely to have a religious experience because you have that belief, right? Yes. So, in fact, some people actually train themselves to have religious experiences. So there's this really cool research done by Tanya Lerman, and she did this uh, anthropological study of these Christian groups, and she found that they would train themselves to experience Jesus. How did that work? Well, they, they would engage in practicing imagery over and over again. So they would visualize... God and Jesus and, uh, you know, very strong visualizations. And eventually they would experience something that they interpreted as not being their imagination, but actually God. Is that like the equivalent of seeing Jesus in your toast? That? No, because when people um, see Jesus in toast, they don't think it's actually Jesus. They think it's oh. an, they might think it's an image of Jesus. But they don't think Jesus himself is in the toast. They just so think in that, this experiment, this is actually the fact that people felt they they literally felt God. They were in the presence of of God or Jesus. Yeah, I, I should wow. say about the toast thing. They might think that the fact that Jesus is on the toast was the result of a divine intervention. But the act of but the very act of seeing Jesus in the toast isn't necessarily a religious experience, right? I mean, you could show the toast to somebody else and they can look at it and acknowledge that it looks like Jesus or not. You it's like a Rorschach mean? test. But they're not, yeah, <laughs> but they're not uh, uh, thinking they're in the presence of Jesus when they're near the toast, usually. Right. Okay, so sorry. Back to Tanya Larman's experiment. Yeah. So they would, they would experience something that they interpreted as God. Would they also experience things that were not God? Yeah. In fact, it's very common for religious people to discuss with each other whether what they experienced was religious or not. Um, so... You know, they they become aware of some things. They might see things, uh, but they don't always think that it is uh, a religious thing, right? So it's the things that match the religious concepts that get flagged as messages from gods, right? So they they acknowledge that there are hallucinations. They acknowledge that there are works of your imagination, and um, and not and not everything that you even hallucinate is necessarily a message from God. And I guess someone who isn't religious isn't going to be necessarily looking for signs from gods. Right. So if someone's looking for a sign from God or the gods or something like that, then even something like a burst of wind might be seen as a message from God, like if you're looking for it, right? And then there are, there are experiences that are very easy to interpret as religious, like things that lots of people would think of as religious experiences. So sometimes with psychedelic drugs, 
um, psilocybin or LSD in the correct, um, uh, if you do it in the right environment, the context is very important. You're very suggestible. Um, you, or even like listening to religious teachings or drumming or something like that, you can have a very profound experience uh, that even atheists might think of as religious in a way. Uh, and some of these things have really changed uh, people's outlooks on the world for the rest of their life. There's a really good book I just got finished reading, How to Change Your Mind uh, by Michael Pollan. And he talks about how um, there are lots of studies where sometimes you could just bring somebody in and they take one like mushroom trip under the right conditions and their outlook on the whole world changes for the rest of their life just because of one one experience. Um, this also can happen with a drug called DMT, which is the active ingredient of uh, ayahuasca. Um, or when somebody has a, a hallucination with even a temporal lobe epilepsy seizure. So sometimes when people have uh, seizures in their temporal lobe, they can go into another world, right? So some, some hallucinations are really simple. They might distort your perception a little bit. But DMT and temporal lobe epilepsy, they put you in a totally different world, it, almost like you're dreaming, right? So um, in fact, people who take DMT, they like to be in the dark with their eyes closed because they otherwise it would like interfere with their eyes. So they, they can see the real world and the made up world at the same time. And it's sort of like double vision. So they close their eyes and sit in the dark so they can better experience this um, hallucinated world. And they have characters and, and the whole thing often feels very meaningful. It might be terrifying, it might be euphoric, but it feels very drenched in meaning. Uh, so these kind of things are very easy to interpret as, you know, what we might call religious experiences and messages from some other realm. I've also heard of people who've had uh, brain injury who previously had were uh, agnostic and following the brain injury became extremely religious and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the posters uh, a few years ago in the Society for Neuroscience annual conference, which is the major conference for all neuroscientists globally, uh, a few years ago, the poster that had the most individuals coming flocking to it that was very popular was one where uh, neuroscientists had claimed to discover the part of the brain that governed religious experiences, uh, kind of drawing from all this similar literature and what happens with temporal lobe epilepsy and certain regions of the brain that uh, are altered that cause these religious experiences. And we still don't know about uh, what happens with the hallucinogenic agents, but I'm, I'm, I feel like we're, we're honing in a little more and more on what, not necessarily brain uh, uh, which anatomical region is involved in religious experience, but I think it's more related to the wavelength, the actual firing of certain cells in certain brain circuits. Yeah, there's, it's, you know, one of the things that's so neat and or frustrating about neuroscience is that there's all these different, there are all these different lenses to look at brains through. There's anatomical, there's connective, there's functional, there's, um, uh, there's, you know, measuring the waves and then there's, um, chemicals right so these like these drugs like the psychedelics in very low doses can have a major effect like just a couple of molecules it seems can like change your whole experience so um yeah i think I, you know one of the things people i think it's really fascinating because religious experiences and religion in general is not often thought of in the same you know or spoken of in the same breath with neurons and that kind of thing right so so when you put them together it's really kind of intriguing and I think some people would f would actually be insulted by that claim, right? That people who truly believe and have these religious experiences, I think they would 
they would be insulted to think, oh, this is only pattern of firing or, you know well, what I mean? Like yeah, I think- but, but that's, that's a misinterpretation because um, even, even if some religion is absolutely true, uh, we wouldn't expect the brain to have no way of experiencing it, right? So you can't say that just because we've discovered the brain areas for morality or, the, or how the brain works for moral thinking means that there are no morals. And we can't say that just because we found the part of the brain that can interpret light means there's no light. So just because there's a part of the brain that we can associate with experiencing God or something else doesn't doesn't cast doubt on whether there's a God. Although some people, inter- as you said, some people do interpret it that way, which is, I think, a little bit interesting and strange. Well, I think that relates to people's dualistic thinking. Anyway. Yes. One thing I have heard is, so I, I know uh, some individuals who have done things like ayahuasca, which is a, um, it's a tea that's drunk in, in certain parts of South America, in particular Peru, that they feel like they become at one with the universe. It's really common. So, um, it's really common with religious experience. It's common with some psychedelics. Um, and it can happen during meditation, but with meditation, it often takes years of practice to get there. So... One very famous meditator, the Dalai Lama, he meditates for hours a day. You know, he just sits and meditates for hours a day. And he actually uh, has urged neuroscientists to try to replicate the feeling that he gets, this feeling of oneness with the universe, with brain stimulation. So can you can you neuroscientists please figure out a way to get people to feel one with the universe so they don't have to do all of this work? Uh, you know, I guess even he finds it onerous to spend so much time meditating. Yeah, it's, it's interesting <laughs> because there are psychedelics that can get you into that state, right? Yeah, and I, uh, I, I wondered about that. I looked and I found an interview where they asked him about psychedelics. And he said in the interview that people shouldn't have to rely on external things like drugs. They should cultivate their own mind through meditation. But that seemed really at odds with his uh, idea that we should just stimulate it. Because the stimulation, like what's the difference between drugs and stimulation? I think he doesn't want to be associated with substance substances and you know uh, buddhists typically um don't want you to drink alcohol or take drugs right so maybe brain stimulation sometimes feels more pure (laughs) than uh taking drugs but you know this but the in any case the feeling um of becoming one with the universe uh, usually is accompanied by some deactivation or deaffirmation of a particular brain area uh sometimes it's the one that distinguishes your body from the rest of the universe or the default mode network or something like that. So, you know, when you meditate in different ways, uh, it causes different experiences because you're activating or deactivating different parts of the brain. Which to me says that it must have to do with the parietal lobe, right? Because the parietal lobe is the region of your brain that uh, is primarily implicated in processing the sense of your body in space, right? So people who have damage to the parietal lobe will sometimes weirdly claim like a certain limb doesn't belong to them or they feel like if they close their eyes, they would collapse because they can't um, integrate the sensory information without their eyes of where their body is in space. So meditation deactivates that parietal lobe and the left side of your brain, I think more in general, is that correct? Yeah, and... um that's interesting, like the like thinking that their leg doesn't belong to them, right? Because in that case, they do still have an intact sense of self. Well, 
They believe that there is a self, they just don't think their leg is a part of it. <laughs> Feeling one with the universe is when you don't even, you don't have a self where something can be in or out of it, right? And, uh, but that does get, um, uh, that is a result of deactivation of uh, left hemisphere and the uh, parietal lobe and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, they get this disillusion of self or the destruction of the ego, it's sometimes called. And then uh, they often believe as a result of this, or for a time anyway, that this is sort of the true nature of the universe, that they there is no self and the world is continuous and everything else. So there's one thing to sort of feel that and it's another thing to actually believe it. Um, you know, I don't know, you, you just deactivate one part of the brain uh, and then you think that the thing that that brain is good at detecting doesn't exist is kind of strange. <laughs> you sound certainly uh, contemptuous. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, if I if I ask you, say, oh, Kim, close your eyes. Can you see any light? And you say no. And I'm like, see, there's no light in the universe, right? That's just, just because I'm denying you the ability to detect light doesn't mean there isn't any light. So um, if you shut off the part of your brain that can see the difference between you and the world, does that say anything important about the nature of the universe? Like that's, I think that's questionable. But then people will interpret this as somehow more real than their everyday experiences when they can distinguish their body from the world. Yeah, I'm not really, I don't think anyone really knows why. Um, I, I can speculate a little bit. You know, the left, the left brain is more associated with logical and analytical thinking. And when you quiet your left brain, you get this more holistic right brain view of the world taking uh, more of the share of your experience. And somehow this is very a very pleasurable experience. So... Jill Bolte-Taylor has this really great TED talk called My Stroke of Insight. And she's a, I think, a neurologist, but something, neuro, neurocal scientist of some kind. Uh, she has a great account of this. And she had a stroke in the left side of her brain. And she talked about this, like, really wonderful experience. I mean, maybe also frightening, but just a, like a really wonderful experience of uh, what it's like to experience the world as just a right brain. And it just felt um, very continuous with the whole world and that kind of thing. Um, and maybe with long-time meditators, they actually achieve that too. Um, but, you know, it's hard because it's so much work. And, you know, but then taking magic mushrooms isn't a whole lot of work, and that can also be life-changing. So it looks like there are multiple <laughs> ways to enlightenment. <laughs> so what about out-of-body experiences? An out-of-body experience is when you feel like you and your body are separate. So the most common kind and the kind that people probably think of is when you hear about somebody experiencing that they are outside their body looking at it from above. So they might be lying in a hospital bed and then they have this experience where they're near the ceiling looking down on their body. But there are actually all different kinds of out-of-body experiences. So there are ones where you see a double of yourself in the room, but you're still in your body. Um, there's some where it's like fluctuating, like you don't know which one is you uh, and you don't know where your experience is coming from. Uh, but what these all have in common is a loss of connection with your body. What I mean by that is like uh, how in touch do you feel with your body at that time? So if you're like sitting still for a very long time, like you do when you're meditating, uh, you lose the sense of where your body is a little bit because you're not getting much feedback from your muscles and all that and your proprioceptive system. So you're more likely then to have uh, an out-of-body experience. Like when you're sitting in a hospital bed for right, exactly. long periods of time. Exactly. So if yeah. you're if you are sitting for a long time meditating or you're bedridden, 
um, you lose a little bit of touch with your body, which I think is probably why there are so many out-of-body experiences reported uh, in medical contexts when people are in hospital beds rather than playing basketball or something like that. Um, and then they did a study. They found that people who are more in touch with their bodies, people like dancers and athletes, they're actually less likely to have out-of-body experiences, where somebody who's like uh, in a wheelchair is, is a little bit, they have less control over their body, they have less reason to attend to it, and uh, they're more likely to have an out-of-body experience. I feel like there's, there's something there about how, you know, because meditation and, and that, you know, s sense of being quiet and, and sitting, it, it's known to be good for mental health, right? That there, is, there are some claims, certainly, that, you know, these things can be beneficial to mental health. So I'm just wondering about how in our modern society, we tend to be overstimulated over, you know, we're always thinking, we're, we're not, we're never uh, sitting and being, we're always sitting and doing, we're, we're doers, not beers, you know? So right. how, you know, how might that, like, what is it about sitting quietly and having these so-called, whatever experiences, whether you're religious or you're, if you're not religious, you feel at one with the universe, how is this um, beneficial to brain activity and mental health? I don't know. Yeah, that's a, it's actually very complicated. Uh, one of the problems is that um, meditation studies can't really effectively have a good control group because um, like you can't really have like a placebo group because it's very hard to come up with something that uh, like everybody knows whether they're meditating or not and they have baggage that comes with it right um so but you know studies do show and also it's also complicated by the fact that there are very different kinds of meditation there's meditation where you're focusing on something there's meditation where you're trying not to focus there's meditation where you're visualizing and um, as I said, you know, different kinds of, of practice, and this includes meditation, can affect different parts of your brain. So the kind of state you get into when you experience like speaking in tongues is a very different brain activation state than if you are doing mindfulness meditation. So you, mindful, one, if one thing we can say in general about meditation, if you're, if you're being rigorous about it and doing a particular kind, is that you are deactivating some parts of your brains and or functions or whatever and re, and uh, making some more and less active, and that's going to affect the experience you have, um, but to uh, you can't really generalize more than that, right? So I think there's a lot of mystery about whether meditation is good for you, um, why it's good for you, uh, and then you've got to break it down into which meditative practice are you actually doing. We're very happy to have Ann Taves with us. Ann is a professor of religious studies at UC Santa Barbara, one of the prettiest campuses in the world in terms of natural beauty. And she's been studying for a very long time unusual experiences that might be understood as religious. So, and let's talk, let's start by talking about something that a lot of people have experienced. Uh, that's like when you pick up the phone to call someone and then they're calling you at the same time and you feel like you've got some kind of a mystic connection to them. But yeah, how would someone explain something like that? I mean, the easiest explanation of that from a scientific perspective is just that it's chance. So, the chances that you're going to, I mean, there's some probability that at the same time that you're thinking about somebody, they're going to call you. There's all the times where you were thinking of somebody and they didn't call you that we don't bring to mind when that happens. So, and, and you know, what's funny is that the time that you were thinking of calling them and they are uh, 
doing just about anything is of equal probability as right. them calling you, but we don't notice such things. Right. We don't notice them. So really the question becomes, which ones do we notice? Right. And the ones that we notice are the ones where we're thinking of them and they call. And so that takes on particular meaning for us. And I think the reason it takes on meaning is because we see a pattern in that. We see a connection. And I think we've basically evolved as human beings to recognize patterns, to seek out patterns and see patterns as particularly meaningful. I think recognizing patterns is one of the things that helped us survive as a species. I, I agree. And, and noticing pattern and one, a big part of patterns is sameness. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, it's also a pattern if they called five minutes after you called them. Right. But, but that's not, it's not the same time. Actually, in terms of how people think about parapsychology and the paranormal, the idea that um, we're thinking of them and then five minutes later they do call us is, is somewhat parallel to we're thinking of somebody and then a day later we hear that they died. And maybe they died, you know, right around the time that we were thinking about them. That is another thing that, you know, there's numerous accounts like that that people find incredibly meaningful. And then they often take as evidence of like precognition of special kinds of abilities to somehow see into the future. Right. As opposed to that being a chance event and the fact of that chance event occurring, then striking us as pattern recognizers as highly meaningful. Yeah. And I think memory is important too. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I had a very strong sense that I was going to die that night. So strong. I told a friend and of course I didn't die. And I always try to remind myself because it would be very easy to forget <laughs> right, <laughs> that it didn't right, happen right, and that right. I had a very strong premonition. Right. But if I had died, you could bet that friend would right. remember it and be like, oh, right. he predicted his own death. Right. I think that we can go a long ways in terms of understanding a variety of experiences if if we take this pattern recognizing uh, tendency or ability into account. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the... On the one hand, I think we've evolved to be pattern recognizers, but the patterns we recognize aren't all the same. So that as we learn how to act in our particular cultural context, in our, in a particular religious or, or even, or secular, the context in which we're raised, we're learning patterns all the time. So that growing up in more radically different cultures, we're going to assimilate different patterns and we're going to recognize different things. And growing up in different religious traditions within even the same cultural context, or growing up in highly multicultural cities like Toronto or Los Angeles, um, we're going to have all kinds of pockets of difference where we're learning different patterns. So how might a religion, a culture slash religion, influence the kind of patterns somebody might look for? I mean, just think about the patterns that you, the pattern of activity, for example, that you learn when you start going to a synagogue or a mosque or a church. You're learning a pattern of behavior of what you do as you go in the entrance. Uh, do you 
Do you dip your hand in the holy water font and cross yourself if you're a Catholic? Do you um, bow before the altar if you're a Buddhist? Do you make an offering at uh, image of the deity if you're a Hindu? Um, most of us don't know the patterns of action that we should undertake if we're going to go into somebody else's religious space. Right. We know the ones that we learned for our own, and we don't even usually remember that we learned them. Right. We just accompanied our parents or or never learned any if our parents didn't take us to any of those places. Yeah, we learn it like we learn yeah. how to stand and know. You know yeah, it's, exactly. it's very yeah. unconscious, right? Yeah. But somebody who's a Christian is going to be more sensitive to a pattern of a cross, for example. So if right. they see something that is vaguely cross-like, right. that might be significant to them where it might not be to somebody who is raised Buddhist or something else. And they would have seen all these pictures of Jesus mm-hmm. around them. And they might have... I mean, they would have had practices, probably, prayer practices, for example, um, where they would have been perhaps doing them in relation to the image or a statue, some kind of representation, so that that image has become very familiar. And that becomes part of a pattern so that we were talking earlier about people recognizing faces in objects or in, you know, the, the... the image of Jesus in toast. Right. Um, if you've been praying in relation to images of Jesus, you're going to be much more likely to pick out the face of Jesus <clears throat> than you are the face of Ganesh, the elephant. Hindu uh, God, right. right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and this is not uh, restricted to religion either. I remember reading about um, rare bird sightings and... The, the bird the bird organizations they will not accept it unless there's a photo because people are eager to have seen an endangered bird and uh, they I actually read they said if I hadn't believed it I wouldn't have seen it right <laughs> a flip on the you know if I didn't see it I wouldn't have believed it well in another way related <clears throat> to that that practice makes makes such a huge difference I am a totally primitive you know bird identifier I can figure out you know, a few of the really common birds that show up around my house. Yeah. But I have friends who are major bird watchers who go around the world on these birding trips and can identify tons of birds. That comes through practice of identifying patterns of details in birds that then allow you to know what it is. Right. And then you see um, what we call in psychology ambiguous stimuli, which right. which means is it's um it's not exactly clear what it is, and that's when your expectations can really yeah have a big effect, right? And if we then trans pull that into thinking about not just stimuli in the external world, like looking at birds, but apply it to internal sensations and stimuli in our bodies and in our minds. One of the people that I know pretty well, Tanya Lerman, has studied um, evangelicals who learn to hear God. And part of what she uh, figured out by getting to know them is the way 
that they learn over time to figure out which of their thoughts to separate their own thoughts from thoughts that they have that then they attribute to God. So they. So there's a question then, like some, yeah, they, yeah, and they have to sort them. Yeah, they learn to hear God in their mind based on certain criteria. I mean, if the thoughts are exactly like what they would want to think, that's likely not God. That's likely just them. So, I mean, that would be just one example of a criterion that that God would be putting a different kind of thought into your mind. And and that's done by a religious authority, right? So, like, the... the the leader would 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 be the arbiter. No, God wouldn't say that. Well, actually, um, Tanya's told tells the amusing story about what one of these ministers said about the kinds of thoughts that you're having about that God's that you think that God is giving you. If they fit in, a, if God's giving you encouragement, you know, to do your homework, to get to work on time, to do, to pray, pray more often, to do pretty expected things that, okay, fine, you can assume that's God and you can go ahead and do those things. But if God is telling you to quit your job and move across the country or divorce your partner and you know, run off with somebody else. Those are the kinds of messages that you need to take to your prayer group and pray deeply about, and then maybe bring also to the minister, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is that the more radical the alleged messages from God are, the more you need to go through a process of discernment with other people to see if these are authentically from God or somewhere else. So you, you called it a learning process. So, you know, it's uh, how do you learn is the idea that you're these people are trying to learn how to hear God's messages? Yeah, that they're that they're learning how to first of all a pattern of discrimination that which which things that come into their mind might be from God and which are them. So they're learning a sorting process. And then based on that sorting process, they're per they might get the idea personally that some things might be of God. And so then there has to be this broader process of, you know, evaluating whether it really is or not. So I think many traditions have that kind of discernment process that they don't just assume that an individual can figure it out by by themselves and so sometimes it will be a particular teacher or authority like you were saying before mm -hmm. so it could be a minister or a guru or you know some kind of religious leader but it can also be a group or it can be the teachings of a tradition i mean so there's a lot of things that might help you decide. Right. So I've heard I've heard that in meditation retreats you often meet with the yeah. teacher every once in a while to talk about the thoughts in your head and what they yeah. mean and everything yeah. like that. And then the teacher would also um help guide you in your practice because most of these traditions, when you enter into a deeper level, they have a kind of path of development built into them. So that kind of one-on-one -on -one with a teacher or spiritual guide or something like that 
can often be very important in terms of moving to the higher levels that the tradition itself is suggesting that you develop. This, it sounds like the cultures have learned almost recipes for how to make your body and mind have these experiences. And the, tra- the part of the training is getting better at the recipes or the, the ritual. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true. And there are some people who would argue that these traditions are all taking people to the same place. I tend to think that the traditions are you are are drawing on different kinds of human abilities and sort of doing more of a mix and match sort of process where they can have different goals and take people in somewhat different directions. I mean, a lot of Buddhist meditation practice would want the practitioner to realize through watching um, how their minds work that there's no stable sense of self and that things are um, constantly changing. And those are Buddhist assumptions about the nature of reality. Right. Um, Christian or Muslim assumptions about the nature of reality, which is going to be premised on a deity. Um, and eternal souls and yeah, no permanence. Yeah, yeah. Are going to facilitate a process of our inner selves, our souls, you know, interacting with the deity through prayer practices that are going to be structured differently from the meditation practices that are observing the nature of the self and, and the passage of events. Yeah, I, I remember a paper about different brain areas being deactivated with certain practices, and you could like help understand the difference between people speaking in tongues versus feeling one with the universe from six hours of meditation, because the, the rituals that you're doing are, are making your brain behave in different ways that can bring about experience. Yeah, and... I mean, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that the traditions, I mean, develop practices that fit with their theologies. But they wouldn't do the ones that led right. to the wrong conclusions. Exactly. <laughs> Although there are amusing stories because people do sometimes experience things spontaneously. Researchers that I know who are studying um, difficult experiences, troubling experiences, that meditators have in a context of meditation retreats, Buddhist meditation retreats, and it's just a subset of people, but the the troubling experiences aren't studied as much. And so in collecting these accounts, one of the ones that struck me as amusing was people having, occasionally having these sort of high energy experiences that in the Hindu tradition would uh, be understood as kundalini experiences. These are not something that Buddhists cultivate. Okay. But occasionally people will have experiences. In the wrong religion. Yeah, in the wrong religion. <laughs> so <they're>, so <laughs> it's something appreciated by the Hindus, but not right. part of the Buddhist. Right, but it uh, would also mean book. that they wouldn't necessarily have a name for them. I mean, if 
if they have been practicing pretty exclusively within a Buddhist meditation tradition, and then they have an experience that doesn't quite fit, they wouldn't necessarily have a way to conceptualize it or a way to think about it. Right. It just gets, it's noise. To the well, or it's noise or it's troubling and right. difficult. And there's also, you know, there's interesting accounts of, uh, people raised either in more secular traditions or in, for example, Protestant traditions that don't emphasize experience very much, having unusual experiences that they don't know what to make of. And so they wind up sometimes not talking about them to anybody because they might be afraid that they're going crazy or something or that people around them won't understand them. And then many years later, sometimes being in an environment where they hear people talking about experiences like they had, and then all of a sudden feeling like, oh my goodness, there is a framework to understand this in, and then often joining that religious tradition because now they have a framework for something that happened to them in the past that they didn't know what to do with before. So it's almost like it becomes a religious experience because of a yeah. later a later yeah. appraisal and framing of it. Exactly. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, now, so we've talked a little bit about the differences, um, and it seems sometimes that there's nothing in common with, you know, snake handling and uh, sitting on a mountaintop for 10 days. But uh, are there some commonalities in ritualized practice across religions? Oh, sure. I mean, I think if we... I mean, we started out talking about pattern recognition, yes, and that's really, I think, really basic. Um, but I think when we start talking about rituals, we can move to um, things like focusing of the attention. That as you know, as we focus our attention on things, as we per perhaps pull ourselves into particular scenes or, or descriptions that our tradition might have of historic or, you know, of events in the stories that our traditions recount. Those of us, especially that are good visualizers, may feel ourselves pulled into those scenes so that they can become very real for us. And then in that context, we might find ourselves interacting with you know, the figures that are depicted in the scene. So I think all kinds of things can begin to happen in that context. And depending on the stories or the events that are, that we're encouraged to focus on and often to meditate on, the content of what we experience and who we encounter will be very different. But the mechanisms that say, the ritual or the visualization process or the chanting or the singing that those draw us into, those mechanisms can be very similar. You know, I, I've read that a lot of, maybe most of the religions that have ever been have, have uh, involved a lot of um, uh, asceticism or, or, or dangerous or uh, frightening, what's the rituals of... Um, terror or something like that. Oh, extreme rituals? Yeah. That's, isn't that actually quite common across religions of history? And it's, it's, it's sort of attenuated lately when the, with the big five religions taking over the world? Well, I think even in 
what you're referring to as big five religions, they have, they have, uh, you know, monastic, they have traditions within them. That's right. Yeah. They're not monolithic. They're not monolithic at all. Right. And so if you think, for example, of monks and nuns or, you know, within Christianity, but also, you know, monastic traditions within Buddhism, um, and there's also more, uh, focused practices, many of them within Hinduism. So there's a lot of these more focused practice traditions. And asceticism, the first thing you mentioned, is a big part of most of those. And, and For those of you who don't know, asceticism is like a deprivation of food or water or yeah, social yeah, for yeah. some extended period of time. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, so fasting, for example, mm-hmm. would be a way to talk about, quote, food deprivation. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Something we're experiencing right now. Right. Waiting right, for dinner. We're getting ready for dinner. <laughs> um, but there's also things, for example, there's monastic traditions where monks go and meditate in caves. So they're going to be deprived of light. Mm-hmm. And certain kinds of effects will happen when you're deprived of light and you can see those kinds of effects if you put people in deprivation tanks but it's really interesting one of um, students who worked with me now graduated compared um, light related practices of uh, Tibetan Buddhists meditating in caves versus uh, Christian Eastern Orthodox monks practice meditating in caves or praying in caves. And because of the differences in light levels, they had different kinds of light effects. Wow. But both of them had theologies about light so that the light effects were very significant in both traditions. But because they understood light differently in the two traditions, they incorporated them in the kind of practices they did and where they were trying to go in different ways. So they were using a bodily effect, the ability to draw that effect out more through sensory deprivation, and then integrating those effects into theological traditions that would see those effects as indicators of where they were on a a spiritual path. Well, on that note, let's go to dinner and see what we can see in the bread. Okay, cool. (laughs) This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible in part by the Earth's magnetosphere, which keeps Dr. Davies and Dr. Hellemans alive by protecting them and our listeners from the solar wind and cosmic rays. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.